Thank you. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, so as Pete said, we are in the middle of a prayer series looking at lots of different types of prayer, which has been fun. Um, but I'm looking at revival prayer today, and um, I'm going to get straight to it, because to be honest, I ran through everything that I was going to say on Thursday, and it was 45 minutes. So you'll be pleased to know that I've trimmed it, and it's not that long, but there's lots to cover. But I guess just to say that, um, yeah, I feel like I'm only really scratching the surface on this, so probably only saying half of what I want to say. Um, so sorry if I miss out any of your favorite stories. Um, but let's talk about it another time. But um, shall we pray really quickly? <clears throat> so, Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Would you come now? Speak to us, Lord. We pray. We welcome your holy fire, Lord. Inspire us, Lord. Awaken us, Lord. And I pray you'd help me, Lord, as I share. In Jesus' name, amen. So... Um, what is revival? And it feels important to say at the start because I'm aware that there's probably um, as many different ideas or opinions or definitions of what revival is as there are people in the room. Um, so um, it's a super abstract and probably quite a mysterious thing, which feels really cool. But um, yeah, I'm going to give it a go about saying what I feel like revival might be. Um, so you might have heard revival or spiritual awakening used as um, terms slightly interchangeably, but um, essentially revival is something that happens in and through the children of God. It's when the fire of God falls in a particular place upon the children of God. This is then so that there's an awakening in the world around this concentrated place of the fire of God. So revival is in the place of prayer amongst the people who are praying and seeking and asking God for it. And awakening is what happens out there, which transforms the world, transforms culture. So revival has and will look very different in every place. And that happens because it's not formulaic. And I want to preface everything I'm going to say with that, that this is in no way a template or a model. Or if you do this, this will equal revival um, because that's not the way it works. And um, there's a scholar called Dr. Brad Allen who's written lots of books about revival. And he says this. He says, every revival throughout church history is unique. No two are exactly the same. God uses different people, different methods, and different times. However, one thing is always the same in times of revival. There has never been a great revival without great prayer. That's a little clearer then of what we're going to talk about. Prayer, praying for revival. So often revival is about um, people who have been distant or far away from faith coming to faith or returning to faith. People having a sudden awareness of God and their need to get right with him. Um, even if they might not have ever been exposed to Christianity or be, call themselves a Christian but it's so much more than what we think of as evangelism. And obviously evangelism is important. It's important to share our faith. I'm definitely not saying that it's not. Um, but revival and awakening is almost a divine interruption of people's lives where people can just be woken up in the middle of the night for apparently no reason except for a desire and a hunger to meet with God. Duncan Campbell who was one of the leaders in the Hebridean revival in the 1950s, said that in that time, 75% of those that came to faith weren't in a church service. They weren't in gatherings like this or prayer or worship nights, as much as we would love you to come to them. Um, they were out in the fields working, doing their thing, um, and suddenly the presence of God came upon them and they fell to their knees with an overwhelming desire that they needed to get right with God. Which is mad, isn't it? I feel like I can just read that quite quickly, but that's crazy. People just doing their thing, and suddenly this awareness of the presence of God, this divine interruption. John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York, calls revival an acceleration of the normal work of the Spirit. So what we might normally expect to see in 10 years, we see in a day. 
thousands coming to faith, not a handful, and that's what they saw in the Hebrides. So, essentially, a revival in here, which leads to an awakening out there, which leads to the transformation of culture. So, that's what we're going after, that's what we've got a vision for, that's what we'd love to see, and I hope it stirs something of excitement in you as well, because that's what I'm talking about. So, um, I'm going to just have a, a little look via a couple of characters in the Bible as well to set the scene. So, first is to our friend Habakkuk um, in the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament prophet towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, and just a bit of context for this, Israel is in a pretty low point. They've not got a godly king, and he's leading Israel away from God. And so God raises up this prophet Habakkuk, this prophet who sees disaster incoming because of the decisions that the king is making and the way that he's leading the people. So he sees quite literally the Babylonian army rising up against them, which I can imagine, I can only imagine, must be pretty terrifying. And from this place, Habakkuk cries out, really just out of frustration, and he says this in chapter one. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? How long, Lord, must I call for your help, but you do not listen? And these are frustrated prayers at God's seeming inactivity. And when the Lord responds, um, he says this thing, which is pretty, a pretty well-known verse. I think it's often put onto a nice picture of a mountain in, in a kitchen somewhere. Um, but he says this also in Habakkuk 1. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something, something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. So then Habakkuk takes this promise, which probably feels alarmingly different to the current reality, and he prays for it to happen. He intercedes for it to come into being. And that's essentially what the rest of the book of Habakkuk is. It's a prayer for God to move and do what he said he would do, do what he said he would promise. And part of Habakkuk's prayer and response to God's promise is this verse, which hopefully you might recognize from in our time. Um, I'm going to read it out, though, because often I try and paraphrase it and butcher it. So I'm going to read it. <laughs> Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And that's Habakkuk 3, verse 2. So Habakkuk has heard the stories of Israel's God, Yahweh, how he provided for them, how he led them out of slavery from the Egyptians, how he brought them to the Red Sea, split the Red Sea. He provided manna from heaven when they needed food. And he's heard these stories. You can kind of imagine Habakkuk's grandparents or auntie being like, hey, Habakkuk, come here. Let me tell you the stories of what God has done. So he's heard these stories. He knows that God can do it, um, but he's not seeing it. He's hungry to see it, and he's not content with just the stories of the past. Now to another example in the Bible, I'm going to go to Elijah and um, just going to pop to 1 Kings chapter 18. And again, to give some context, Israel has turned away from God, but this time they're being led by King Ahab, who is married to a lady called Jezebel, and she's leading them to worship um, a God called Baal instead of um, the true God, instead of Yahweh. And um, Elijah has this moment um, of saying enough is enough um, in the face of all of this the Israel are worshipping Baal instead of God. And he says, enough is enough, and basically invites the prophets of Baal into a bit of a spiritual showdown, which is slightly strange. I'd recommend going and reading it later. Um, but they basically set up these two altars with two sacrifices on it. And Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, okay, you call on your God and get him to set fire to the sacrifice, and I'll call on my God, Yahweh, and let's see what happens. Um, and essentially, we read this in the story, this amazing moment of where the fire of God falls on Elijah's sacrifice and nothing happens 
um, on the prophets of Baal. So Yahweh sends his fire and the prophets of Baal realize that God is God, that Elijah's God is God. And they fall on their faces in worship, proclaiming the Lord is God. But through the story, again, we see someone taking a stand. We see Elijah standing up and saying, enough is enough. Looking at the world and the current reality and saying, this isn't right. This is not your intention, God. Something has to change. He calls on the name of the Lord and God promises to Elijah that he will pour out his spirit and that he will send the rain of heaven upon the city too. So he'll send the fire and he'll heal the land from the drought that they are experiencing. So from reading these passages and by digging into um, a bit of the story of the Hebrides revival, um, I am just going to go through quickly four threads that I see and what I've read about um, some threads or themes that seem to come up um, in stories of revival. And they're these. So number one, the crystallization of discontent. And I'll, I'll explain these as I go. I'll just run them quickly because I'm aware that sounds like a weird phrase. Um, so crystallization of discontent, then receiving a promise from God, pursuing and cultivating holiness and worship, and then a commitment to covenantal prayer. So crystallization of discontent. Sounds weird, I know. But um, it's a psychological term where people like Habakkuk and like Elijah speak out against something that they know isn't right. We're all discontent, aren't we? There's probably stuff that we see in the world that we don't agree with and think, gosh, I'd really like that to change. Um, But often, and I know very much in my case, um, not quite enough to actually do anything about it. We get distracted easily, don't we? Um, But this moment of the crystallization of discontent is where an active decision is made, where we say, enough is enough. I can't carry on living the way I've been living. And psychologists describe it like the moment when someone in an abusive relationship realizes, I can't stay in this relationship, I need to leave, I need to get out. Um, Or when someone wakes up and realizes, I'm in a cult and I need to leave. So it's that moment, can't carry on this way, something needs to change. And following this moment, this crystallization of discontent, God seems to speak to his people in the gift of a promise, a vision of an alternative reality, the kingdom reality. And just like the promise that Habakkuk heard that God was going to do something amazing, despite it seeming impossible. Now, just to zoom in very quickly into the story of the Hebridean revival, which was an amazing outpouring of the Spirit in the Hebrides, which is um, just at the tip of Scotland. And at one time, I I said it was in the middle of nowhere. And Ali Gifford, I didn't think she was here, but she told me off because she's Scottish. She's like, it's not in the middle of nowhere, it's in Scotland. So it's in Scotland, (laughs) in case you're wondering. But um, uh, yeah. they saw thousands of people coming to faith in the 1950s, this amazing outpouring of the Spirit. It's like, it's really quite mad. Um, and it all started from these two elderly ladies who had this crystallization of discontent moment. These ladies called Peggy and Christine. They're old, they can't get to church because their legs are sore, um, but they can pray, and pray they did. And their discontent was this, that there were no young people in their church. Um, in that area at all. They were literally looking at their church and um, watching faith die out. Like as people in the congregation died, faith wasn't getting passed on and they were looking at it and thinking, Lord, this isn't right. Faith can't die out in this place. You need to do something. And, um, and so they started to pray and they felt God lead them to this scripture. So they had the moment of the crystallization of discontent and then they had this promise spoken to them from God which was um, in Isaiah 44, verse 3, which says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And that was their promise. 
just like God spoke to Habakkuk and promised that he would do something different in his land, despite the reality looking very different. So Peggy and Christine had this promise from God, and so off they went to their local minister and shared the burden and felt like what, they, what the Lord was asking them to do. So the ministers and some others decided that they would join in with them as well and start praying. So they took their prayers very seriously. They gathered from 10 p.m. until 3 or 4 p.m., twice a week, um, Peggy and Christine in their house because they couldn't leave, and then the others in the church, um, and they prayed, which I personally find quite alarming because I enjoy my sleep quite a lot. I quite often like to be in bed asleep by 10 p.m., not at the start of my prayers. Um, but um, so they were gathering and praying, and then I'm just going to read a description of what happened next according to Duncan Campbell. So he says this, One night, they were kneeling there in the barn, pleading this promise. I will pour water on him that is thirsty, floods upon the dry ground. When one young man, a deacon in the church, got up and read Psalm 24, which says this, Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. He shall receive the blessing, not a blessing, but the blessing of the Lord. And then that young man closed his Bible And looking down at the minister and the other office bearers, he said this. It seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And then he lifted his two hands. And I'm telling you, just as the minister told me it happened, he lifted his two hands and prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? But he got no further. The young man fell to his knees and then fell into a trance. When that happened in the barn, the power of God swept into the parish and an awareness of God gripped the community such as hadn't been known for a hundred years. So there's this moment of this amazing outpouring of the Spirit in one place which then swept through out into the community. And just reading it, I feel like there's a trigger. The moment that he cried out, God, are my hands clean? There's this pursuit of holiness. And if we're honest, it's quite hard to always pursue that, isn't it? I know I've run struggle. Um, but um, I, I've been thinking about this and wondering, like, Lord, why is it? Why, where, where does this awareness come from? Why do we need to become aware of our brokenness and enter into your holiness? And, and I think that it's because... God wants to stir an awareness in us that when revival comes, it's nothing really to do with us. It's all to do with God. It's all about him pouring his spirit out. And I met up with um, Bill Birdwood. I don't think he's here. Bill in the congregation, an amazing man who served in Exeter prison for years and saw um, this amazing outpouring of the spirit in the 90s where um, people, they were in prayer meetings and people were like weeping, huge guys, Bill was saying, just totally on their faces before God and this amazing outpouring of the spirit. And Bill said this thing which so stuck with me and he just said, we're always spectator to revival. And I love that because it's God's revival, it's his work, not ours. So there's this moment where the fire of God comes as that young man in the Hebrides says, my hands aren't clean. And it's almost a change, a switch in the way that he's thinking, that it's not about me, it's not about him. It's about God using the broken and foolish things of the world to usher his kingdom in. We play our part in preparing the way, pursuing holiness, cultivating the soil of our hearts. But what I see in this particular bit is that whilst revival is a corporate thing, it's waking up of the many, it's the community Um, It starts with each one of us as individuals getting right with God. It starts with us turning inwards to repentance rather than outward in critique. 
And worship also is key to this. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the worship pastor. Pete hasn't slipped me a fiver to talk about worship. <laughs> um, but I find it interesting how that in that story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, um, when God sends down his fire from heaven, it says in verse 30, before Elijah called um, the fire from heaven, that he went to the altar of the Lord, which had been turned down, and he repaired it. And before there was this miraculous fire of God, he repaired the altar. He restored the place of worship, of corporate worship. And that's why our times of corporate worship here are so, so important. Proper, pure worship always precedes the fire of God. He inhabits his, his people's praise, and that's why we give so much time to it here. You've probably noticed that worship, you know, we don't just stick to a nice, clean 15 minutes of worship because that's not what we're going after. It's in worship that we come together as the body of Christ to will one thing, God and his rule and his reign. I also noticed in Habakkuk 3 whilst I was preparing that at the end of the book it says this sentence. It says, for the director of music on my stringed instrument, which is kind of like something you often um, see in the psalm at the beginning of the psalms to tell us that it's something to be sung because that's what the psalm book originally was, a hymn book. Um, and... Um, that feels important to me. That, like, really, I felt the Holy Spirit um, really highlight that to me. If this prayer of Habakkuk's, the cry to God for things to change, for God to move, was meant to be sung. It was meant to be set to music. And our times of worship is our corporate moment to come together, which creates this unity in the church, which attracts and welcomes the kingdom of God. The Moravian revival, which is another revival in the 1700s, was preceded actually by some real disunity in the community. Nice rhyme, never, <laughs> didn't realize that. Um, and um, they were basically falling out all about doctrines, leadership, you think that, I think that. And Count Zinzendorf um, at Hernhut got them all together and they, they decided to come together and agree and work out what they agreed on. And it was from this place, um, this place of willing the one thing, as Soren Kierkegaard would call it, that the fire of God fell and result, resulted in this incredible place of prayer that was sustained for over 100 years. And that's why in our times of worship here, and we've said it often in our time when we gather um, on Tuesdays, that we're not promising to put on brilliant spectacles or shiny evenings where you can come and be wowed and amazed by our skill, um, because that's not what we're going after. We're going after being a community who together cultivate honest worship and holiness over and above everything else. It's about us bringing our sacrifice of praise and letting the Lord use it however he wishes. So now just a little bit on prayer. Um, so in that chapter in 1 Kings 18, we read about Elijah receiving the promise of the gift of rain in the city where there's been a severe drought. But it also feels important to note that, of course, the city is where all the people are, where the culture makers are, um, where they're all still worshipping Baal instead of God. Despite all that's happened on the mountain where Elijah called down fire from heaven, the city hasn't yet experienced it. So there's this fire that's poured out on a small group of people with Elijah on the mountain. And then at the end of the chapter, we read about how the rain does come. God ultimately fulfills his promise. But there's something for Elijah to do in the middle of those two things. There's something that has to come in the moment in between the fire of God falling on the few on the mountain and then ultimately on the many in the city. Here, I'll read it from the Bible. 1 Kings 18 verse 42 says this. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. 
And if you were here the other week when Pete was talking about intercessory prayer, that, that posture, that getting down on his, on his knees, putting his hand, his face between his knees is a posture of prayer. So Elijah climbs the mountain and he prays. And that's, that's what's in between the outpouring of the Spirit on a few and the outpouring of the Spirit on the many. There's a mountain for Elijah to ascend to see that reality come into being. And that mountain is prayer. Elijah squats down to intercede and to birth a new reality into being. It doesn't just happen. It happens because he prays. And I really believe that this is a word for us as a community today, that there's a mountain for us to ascend. Duncan Campbell said this, Show me a people on their faces before God, gripped in the unction of prayer, and I'll show you a people ready for revival. And I feel so excited about this because I feel like we're beginning to see the stirrings of this here. These amazing times where we, where we gather together and the presence of God feels so rich and almost inescapable when you're in the room. Like there's no getting away from God in, in those moments. There's a desire for holiness, but I really sense that this is just the beginning. This is not the end, it's just the beginning. And if we're ever going to see it grow larger than this lovely group, as lovely as it is, um, we're, and if we're ever going to read if we're ever going to see anything like we read about where the power of God sweeps through the community, through the world, and Pentecostal power, we're going to need to learn how to pray for it. To go on the journey up the mountain like Elijah, to walk the path of prayer. And I just want to say quickly something about the kind of prayers we can pray. Because these aren't just um, nice, pretty, polite prayers. We're like, Lord, please, please could you do it? Um, These are covenantal prayers. So I just want to say something about that. There comes a moment in prayer when we begin to understand our covenantal relationship with God, which actually then changes the way that we pray. If we just think of the covenant of marriage, for an example, the way I speak to my lovely husband, Jonah, who's not here, so I can say whatever I want, but the way I speak to Jonah is probably very different to how I might speak to Dave. (laughs) So if I want to ask Jonah to do something, I'd probably ask um, maybe quite directly, maybe on a bad day, a little bit rudely. Whereas Dave, I'd speak pretty politely to, I feel I could say. Um, And um, there's such a depth of relationship in marriage, in that covenant relationship, and there's a security there, which means you can speak to your spouse in a way that you wouldn't speak to anybody else. You can wrestle things out because it's such a safe space. And that's the same in our covenant relationship with God. We can wrestle these things out with him. We can say, God, you said you'd do it and I'm not seeing it. Here's another snippet of this kind of prayer in the Hebridean Revival, another account written by Duncan Campbell. We got to the church about quarter to nine to find about 300 people gathered, and I gave an address. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting, a sense of God, a consciousness of his spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. So I pronounced the benediction, and we were leaving the church. I would say about quarter to 11. Just as I'm walking down the aisle, along with this young deacon who read the psalm in the barn, he suddenly stood in the aisle and looking up to the heavens, he said, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. Soon he is on his knees in the aisle and he is still praying and then he falls into a trance again. And just then, the door opened. It's now 11 o'clock. The door of the church opens, and the local blacksmith comes back into the church and says, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. 
Oh, we were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. When I went to the door of the church, I saw a congregation of approximately 600 people. 600 people, where had they come from? What had happened? I believe that that very night, God swept in Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Ghost. That man wrestled with God. He had this fire, this conviction, this confidence, this resolve that God said that he would, that what God said he would do, he wasn't seeing. And he wasn't okay with that. And I, for one, feel so challenged about that. Where is God inviting me? Where is God inviting you? Where is he inviting us as a community to wrestle for, in prayer for revival? Mark Batson, a brilliant author who's written a book about prayer called The Circle Maker, writes this. He said, prayers are prophecies. Who you become is dictated by how you pray. The transcript of your prayers become the script of your life. The transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. So what does the transcript of my prayer life look like at the moment? Or corporately, here at St. Basil's, what does the transcript of our prayer life look like? Pascal wrote this beautiful thing that says, God gives us the dignity of causality, meaning that our prayers actually make a difference. It matters what we pray about. The transcript of our prayers become the scripts of our lives. What we pray about, what we set our heart towards, changes things. And I want to grow in this. I want to change the transcript of my prayers so that I can see a change in the script of my life. So just as a little summary of what I said, obviously not a formula, um, but some threads that seem to appear. I talked about this, this moment of the crystallization of discontent, looking at the face of reality and saying enough is enough. God, you have to do something. Then receiving a promise from God, having a vision of an alternative kingdom reality. And then pursuing and cultivating holiness and worship, willing the one thing. And then a commitment to covenantal prayer to wrestle it out with God. And I think just to land, there's an invitation for us as a community. Do we want this? Do we want the slightly strange, uncontrollable, uncontainable pouring out of the Holy Spirit? Because it's our inheritance as the children of God. And again, when I was chatting with Bill, he was just telling me a story that one day he was walking into um, Exeter Prison Chapel and he was praying, Lord, send your fire, send your fire. Just really simple prayer like that. And he walked into the chapel and all the fire alarms were going off. <laughs> no fire, no smoke, but just this like strange moment of where he prayed for fire and suddenly all the, the fire alarms are going off. It's so weird. And I was just listening to these and reading the stories and thinking, Lord, I, I want to see this. I really want to see this. And I don't know what it stirs up in you. Um, but I would love us. It's our vision that as a community, we would go after this stuff together. So shall we stand and pray? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you. We thank you for these stories. We thank you that you love to pour your Holy Spirit out on your sons and daughters on this earth on this world. The earth is yours and everything in it, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us with this. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. Teach us how to pray.